Hey, uh, happy Hanukkah, everyone. Uh, delighted to see everyone again. I want to, um, I feel like uh, last week, uh, towards the end, we kind of ran through a lot of really important things. Uh, I want to kind of go through them uh, a little bit, you know, more methodically today because they're really important and really central to the Jewish perspective on a lot of very important things. Uh, so we're talking about, we talk about Tikkun Olam. Um, it's, it's obviously a big idea. We kind of demonstrated that idea, that, that, uh, that point last week, that it, you know, it's really a grand, universal vision that we have. Uh, and then there's a, there's, a, there's a question that Susan brought up, um, which is, okay, we have a universe and a world populated by lots and lots and lots of people. And yet we're talking about the Jewish perspective of Tikkun Olam, and, you know, as Jews, we're, what, 14 million people or 15 million people? We're not such a big percentage, right? We're 0.02% of, of, of the world population. So what about everyone else? So fine, you know, you told us, uh, uh, Rabbi Walby, you told us uh, the role that the Jews are going to play. Well, what about the world at large? So I think it's a very, a very important point, and I, I should have had it in my notes. I didn't have my notes. We'll talk about it now. So what's interesting is like this. Essentially, Tikkun Olam is for everyone. What does the world look like? We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the, that today as well. But what does the world look like when the world is perfected? I'm like, whoa. French. Suddenly we became French. Okay. That is a direct quote from the prayer we say multiple times, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And it's like this. We're talking about the future and this utopian dream that's the end game of this world that we have. And everything will know that God made them. And every creation will understand that God created them. And everyone will say the Almighty is king and controls everything and his dominion is total. Is that just Jews? Well, it's, it's Jews as well, of course. But that's everyone. And I'll say more. Everyone's familiar with the verse in Isaiah that we say that our role uh, amongst the nation is to be a or lagoim, a light to the nations. Right. Furthermore, the temple. The temple was the spiritual epicenter of the Jewish world. But also, it was a spiritual epicenter of the world at large as well. If you were a Gentile and the temple's around and you want to go, you know, uh, pay homage or uh, you know, give a sacrifice to the Almighty, you go to the temple. And in the temple, you bring a sacrifice. Well, wait a minute, Rabbi, in a Jewish temple we have non-Jew sacrifice? Yes, it's not just the Jewish temple. It is a spiritual home in a physical world. Whoever wants to come and ha- take part in that spirituality is welcome. So incidentally, our religion, we don't believe in proselytizing Yet we believe that spirituality and God is the God of everyone, not just the Jews. So, so, so then, okay, so if for everyone, so what's the role of the Jews? It means that we, we're kind of, we're, you know, we're in a pickle here. Okay, fine. So now, if we explain Tikkun Olam is really for everyone, that's what the world looks like when everyone knows of God. Well, what's our responsibility? Our responsibility is that we have an outsized portion, an outsized role in this transition. Through the Torah, we'll talk a little bit about that, how that works in a little bit. Through the Torah, right? Our destiny 
as a, as a nation, our mission as a nation is to be the people that usher in this new world. To be the model nation, everyone copies, everyone learns from, from us. And by the way, look at history. Let's look backwards. Okay, what were we saying 2,000 years ago, and what are people saying today? You know, I read somewhere that if you want to know what the average person is going to be doing, right, throughout the week, in 10 years, look at what the technologists are doing today during the weekends. Someone once, once said that. Hmm. There's people that are kind of living in the future, you know, and they're living in the future today. We essentially, 2,000 years ago, were living in the future. We were living uh, as Jews with ideas that were totally dramatic and radical at the time. Idea of one God. We were saying that 3,000 years ago. We were saying that 2,000 years ago. We were saying that in a world where that was a crazy, futuristic idea. That was insane. That was dramatically different than what the mainstream people believed. We were talking about every man created in the image of God. All men are created equal. Like, that's an idea that's very popular now, thanks to the Renaissance and thanks uh, you know, to the spreading of democracy and the humanistic uh, um, uh, uh, progress that has happened over the past two, 300 years. But that was not a normal idea 2,000 years ago, much less 3,000 years ago. People were assets. Right? You, know, you, you lived and died in the class you were born into. That's the world that was then. And what were we saying? We were saying there's a meritocracy. You control your own destiny. The entire world was created for me. You save one life, you save the entire world. We were saying a mamzer, a bastard, who's a Torah scholar, takes precedence over a coin gadol, who's not a Torah scholar. Can you imagine? The highest office in the Jewish land, the Kohen Gadol, the leader, the spiritual leader of the people, and then you have the guy who was born because a brother and a sister slept together. Pfft, scandal. Shame. Can't get married with the Jewish people. A bastard, a mamzer. But that mamzer, he's a Talmud Chacham, he's a Torah scholar. And he worked on himself. He became, made something out of himself. And he's a greater Torah scholar than the high priest. Who gets the first latte? Who gets the first donut? Who gets the most uh, you know, in, important uh, slot in the panel? Who gets the most honor? The Torah scholar. That's what we were saying 2,000 years ago. So essentially, to answer your question, the Jews, we are the influencers. We are the people and the nation and the ideals that are going to influence and infiltrate, if you will, it's a bad word, but, uh, but go, go, are going to uh, uh, affect tremendous change uh, and influence the entire world. And if you look at the world today, you know, and, and people might not realize, if you look at the world today, it's a world that is dramatically different because of Jewish ideas, and people, Christians in America, like say Judeo-Christian ideas, yeah. which is nonsense. It's yeah. not Judeo-Christian ideas. It's Jewish ideas, Jewish and the Christians stole some ideas right. and perverted them. It's not Judeo-Christian ideas. It's Jewish ideas. Right? This is the world which is much closer to the Jewish ideology and the Jewish perspective of thousands of years ago. Why? Because we're almost done. The world is much closer being perfect than it ever was. You say, right, right, what's around the world, you know? Yeah, okay, you know, we could, you could zone in 
to a micro trend over five years or ten years. Oh, you know this. Uh, uh, what happened to the families? And what happened to the, all this? All the stuff that's happening out there. Uh, yeah, you're right. Go ahead. What do you say? Well, that's a good point. War. We are living right now in the most peaceful time in all of recorded human history. Right now. Like, oh, rabbit, what, what's going on in Syria? Yeah, okay. But that's nothing compared to what was going on at any other point in time in history. So we have a world where basic morals, basic rights, the role of, of, of the individual, right? The, the, the idea of the meritocracy, that all men are created equal, the idea of one God, the idea of morals, basic, absolute human morals, and those ideas are everywhere. We live in a world where there's much less war. Much less war, much less crime. You know, much, how the, the crime rates in every area in America have since the 1970s? Right? Since 1994, the uh, uh, homicides halved in America. So yeah, yeah, of course, you know, there's a lot of high-profile high cases. We're not perfect. We're not done yet. But we are dramatically better than we've ever been. And that's something that's remarkable, you know. But who brought this about? Who was there at the beginning that set this off in motion? We. Abraham, Abraham's children, the family, the tribe, and ultimately the nation. And the nation got the Torah, they got the guidebook, and they have slowly but surely influenced the whole world. So yes, Deuteronomy is for everyone. The end game is an entire world where there's no war, right? Not just no war amongst the Jewish people, but there's no war at all, right? There is uh, um, um, an acceptance of the major ideas of Judaism. There's an adoption of the seven Noahide laws, and that's for the world at large. And our responsibility as direct descendants of Abraham, as Jews who are guided by the Torah and also use the Torah towards accomplishing the goal, we have outside responsibility because it's on our shoulders to make sure that we do that. How we do that is a, is a, is a very interesting question. Because you say, wait, wait a minute. This is, this is I think, a little bit, little bit more advanced uh, discussion. The Jews, over the past 2,000 years, have been marginalized, have been hated, have been persecuted, have been exiled, have, been, have suffered tremendous pogroms and expulsions and inquisitions and holocaust and yet we affect change it seems very bizarre it's like it's not, it's not like we were admired maybe we are today you know the jews are the, i think uh, um, recently they made a study in america what the most admired religion in america might be the jews i like you know people um in america but in europe it's probably different but you look you know if we expand our horizon to look at history it's interesting that we kind of influence the world, or at least our ideas influence the world, despite the fact that people, for reasons they couldn't even pinpoint, hated the Jews. So you have a hated nation, a downtrodden and scattered nation that affects the whole world. That's a, that's a good question, how exactly that works. We'll try to get into that maybe. I have a few ideas to suggest. But to answer your question, yes, Jikulam is for everyone. It's Olam. It's the whole world. It's universal. I thought we were having a discussion about this today, and I, you know, after I listened to your lecture from last week, and it just seemed to me because you know when you talked about in the beginning, we talked about the whole world. So it couldn't then, in the end, just be the Jews. Jews have to That's be right. leaders. We That's have right. to facilitate the changes, right. and that 
I mean, in, in a simplistic level, that's what you're saying. Yeah, but what's also interesting, I think this probably this 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 um, dovetails on the previous uh, uh, point of intrigue, uh, is that we're not really instructed not only to not proselytize, but also to not go advocate. Uh, we're not. We don't need to go. We're not instructed anywhere to go teach the Gentiles, even the Gentile, the Noahide laws. So it's interesting. Like, what's the plan to influence the world yeah. when we're not encouraged to go out and influence the world? There's no mitzvah that says that you know go out and start lecturing. Right. And it, you know, and what it seems like is that it's as if the Almighty is kind of doing that work for us. How so? We're told that we're going to be scattered throughout the nations. And you know what? Look at Jewish history the past thousand years. There's no place, really, almost on 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 this earth that we haven't spent significant time in. And, so that's and we spent five four hundred years in Spain, and then we're bounced out. And then we spent some you know a couple of years in France, and then we're kicked out of there. And we spent some time in England. In twelve ninety, we're out. Thirteen oh six, we're out of France. Fourteen ninety two, we're out of uh, Spain and Portugal. Right? We have these little stops along this universal train ride where we're going from place to place. And we don't know. It means if you ask the guy who's being persecuted, you know, sometime in the Middle Ages, someplace in Europe, you're like, why do I suddenly have to leave? He doesn't realize that God has the much bigger picture. And the big picture for God is, okay, this is a traveling salesman. And we have to sell our wares to everyone. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that? You got to be there, right? E-commerce, huh? What is? I was going to say the open market, but I'm guessing. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, you want, you want to do e-commerce, e-commerce for Judaism? Maybe that's not a bad idea. Uh, but it, it's interesting that like God is as if taking us on this, you know, on this global journey to influence the whole world. So that's how it happens. So, it kind of, so that's one way it happens against our will. And number two is that. We are at the center of a lot of people's focus. We, as 0.2% of the world's population, should not really draw that much interest from uh, the, the, the world's uh, um, um, you know, attention. If you... Go ahead. Well, whether they hate them, they hate, they hate them, but they're interested in them. To me, the bigger question is not why they hate them, why are they even interested in them? You know, I, 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 point, I might have pointed this out before. I've certainly said this multiple times in, in different classes. I'll say it, I don't know, uh, again, in the year 2000, there was a census in China. Of course, every 10 years we have one here as well. How many people are living in this place, right? And whenever you have a census, you have a margin of error. Right? It's, it's not always, it's out within 3 4%. Right? The margin of error for the Chinese census was 48 million people. So it's plus or minus 48 million people wow. from whatever. Number. So, so there's 96 million people, right? That, that's the number, right? It could fall into, you know, you know, that's the spectrum in which the number can really fall. Just the, the numbers. And our whole nation, all told, 14 million, 14, 15 million people. How is it possible that we dominate the attention or, or, or we, you know, we draw the attention? You know, just now in American politics, Israel is always being discussed. Why? I think that the Almighty kind of planted within the psyche of the world this idea, look to the Jews. And, and therefore, we kind of are given this platform even though we don't go try to acquire it. 
There's no way the Torah say, go, go get the platform. But the Bible says, I'll arrange a platform. I'll make them interested in you, and I'll make you travel. Yes, so that's the question. Why, how does, why is the attention often, uh, you know, so vitriolic? Well, vitriolic is a very nice word. So violent is a better word, more accurate word. That's a very good question because we have attention, yet, which in itself is one question. On the other hand, we have this irrational hatred of Jews and of Israel that is universal and that is in every, in every culture, and it is totally irrational. It's of course it's inaccurate, and 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 there've been so many different reasons for it, right? Every culture finds what they hate, and they link that to the Jews. The Jews are super wealthy, okay, class worthwhere. The Jews are super poor, right? They made fun of them that they're poor. We killed their god, right? We uh, we drink Christian babies' blood, like all these things, which are always on. They're untrue. We dominate the world's finance with the elders of Zion nonsense. You know, I, I, I realize that this statistic that came on TV yesterday. Go ahead. That's 56% of the hate crimes in the United States are against Jews. Oh, well. Not yeah. against Muslims. It's 15%. It was like 17% against the Muslims. Oh, yeah. The Listen, you don't need to, you don't need to convince me. The, the phenomenon uh, or uh, the phenomena of anti-Semitic activities... There, we have a thousand years of data. Yeah. It is everywhere. It's pervasive. It's an. It's there's educated anti-Semitism, kind of the 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 German anti-Semitism. There is the ignorant anti-Semitism, in the form of maybe the the Ukrainian anti-Semitism of the of the 17th century. The, you have every different kind of anti-Semitism. The question is why. I think one one point that we we, we have we, we we talked about, and maybe we explained is the idea that we have so much attention and such a spotlight on us, we're going to be talking about why there's so much anti-Semitism. Because it's, it, it's related to our discussion. And, and yet the President and the Attorney General are worried that there's going to be anti-Muslim feeling. It's nonsense. Okay, so I want, I want to yeah. talk about, about how this has actually worked in history and kind of link these ideas to maybe other ideas that all of you, or maybe some of you, or, some, or most of you are familiar with. Um, I know, Ed, you are. I'm sure you guys have heard this as well. So we find this idea in the Talmud. It's an idea that um, it's, it's commonly known. Most people don't know where it's from, what it's so, where, you know, where it's sourced, and what it actually means. But it's very much germane to our subject. And this is actually from the Talmud. It's from the book of Sanhedrin. Uh, the page is 97a, and it reads as follows. They taught in the Academy of Elijah, which is a common way for the Talmud to give an introduction. Where was this idea taught? The world is 6,000 years, 2,000 years chaos, 2,000 years Torah, and 2,000 years Messiah. Okay, so 6,000 year world. We've all heard that idea. Most of us, I'm sure, have heard that idea. This is where it comes from. This is the source. Shis alfin shanehan hava alma. 6,000 years is the world, and it's broken down to 2,000 years of tohu, chaos, 2,000 years of Torah, and 2,000 years of Mashiach Messiah. What does this mean? What's it telling us? What happens after 6,000? What is this breakdown of 222? Let's dig into this. So first thing, what, what th- this Gemara is giving us the best synopsis of what we've been speaking about, of this idea of purpose, the idea of Tikkun Olam. 
And essentially, we're talking about the project that we call this world, and the world has a beginning, and it has a conclusion. Right? There's a process, there's development, there's progress, there's a, a transition from a broken world to a fixed world. We start off with 2,000 years of chaos. Chaos, in the Talmud's words, mean chaotic because there's a lack of awareness of God. That's what it means. You start off with history, and it's a broken world entirely because all you have is chaos. At, in the year 1948, from Adam, right? not, when, <laughs> not, the, not the, after the common era, of, of the common era, 1940, easy number to remember. Abraham was born. Traditionally, Abraham is the one, like we mentioned before, who is going to end the era of chaos. He is going to develop and popularize the idea of God, the idea of morality, the idea of kindness, the idea of faith. We have, the Midrash tells us that when Abraham is 52 years old, he starts studying Torah. Now, we know that's problematic. How do you study Torah before the Torah is given? But you can, right? You're, it's possible to study Torah before it was given. Remember, if Abraham's a prophet, that's one easy, one, one easy answer to the problem. Uh, maybe. If he was a prophet, it came to him in like an inorganic fashion. I think Abraham actually studied, studied it from within because he tapped into the power of his soul to understand the Torah. I've spoken about this at, at, at length uh, in other in other places. I don't want to I don't want to rehash that too often. But the Talmud says the Midrash actually says that Abraham studied Torah me'atzmo from himself. So he found he tapped into the power of his soul, like the soul forty days. I mean, the soul in utero studies Torah. You forget it, but it's still there. If you're able to uncover it, you can retap into that. Abraham starts studying Torah at the, at the age of 52, exactly at the 2,000th year of the world. Thus ends the world of chaos. It's no longer entirely dark. We have a flicker. We have, you know, there's something here. We have an ember that is going to develop Abraham and Abraham's family. Thus, we enter the second transition, which is Torah. Well, well, whose Torah is it? <coughs> it's God's Torah, but then God gives it to us. Who's us? The Jewish people. So we have now 2,000 years of Torah, which is essentially its insular growth. It's Abraham and Abraham's children, Abraham's family, Abraham's tribe, Abraham the Jewish people, Moses and Mount Sinai. The, the people are isolated. They're living in the land of Israel. They're growing in Torah, and they're developing a powerful nation. But the world at large is still totally ignorant of the idea of God. We have 2,000 years from Abraham till the world even hears it, till these ideas start to penetrate the world at large. What do we have? We have Torah. Torah is building the Jewish nation. We have 2,000 years of that. And in the most recent 2,000 years, suddenly we see an explosion of our ideas taking root universally. That's the idea of Mashiach. Mashiach is, in Jewish terminology, the word for describing the era at the end of this process of Tikkun Olam. 
That's what Mashiach means. It's not, yeah, of course it could be understood as one guy or one specific point in history. But we're, we're told that there's 2,000 years of Mashiach. 2,000 years of Mashiach. That's a process of taking not only a nation and having that nation being exemplary, the Jewish nation, but now is the time to actually finish the Tikkun Olam by having the entire world be influenced. That's what we're told, Maimonides, that the idea of Christianity as this sub-religion of Judaism, and similarly Islam, that is part of the global effort to teach the world about God. Essentially, they are our partners, in a weird way, of popularizing these ideas. I'm sorry? What ended the second? Nothing. We're still in it. So there's 4,000 years? We are right now in the last 300 years of the 6,000, of the last 2,000. Yeah, what ended the, you were at the 2,000, you said, and then there was another. That's a yes. Uh, no. So it goes a little bit further. There's a discussion about that. One opinion says, well, 2,000, but it's not exactly 2,000. Uh, that's one opinion. Uh, the other opinion says that if you look at the at the end of the at the end of the at the end of the uh, central authority of the Jewish people, right? When the Sanhedrin finally disbanded in the end of the fourth century, that's almost exactly to the, you know to, to the day. So that's essentially when the Jewish people are no longer bound and insularly focused, right? We no longer have the thing, the last element of a central authority that kept us, you know, kind of united as a single solitary nation. Now we're totally scattered throughout the nation and we're kind of going on our uh, missions to influence the world, even unwittingly. So, that, so that, that, that's the other answer. But two answers to that question. Either trust the Second Temple uh, or 170 years later uh, or 100 and some odd years later. Well, it depends how we're counting, but maybe even multiple hundred years later, 300 years later, when the Sanhedrin finally disbands, there's no longer any centralized authority for the Jewish people. Every office that has uh, uh, dominated the leadership roles from the kings, the prophets, to the judges, uh, to the, the high priesthood, and lastly, the finally, the Sanhedrin, all those are disbanded, and now we're transitioning into... Uh, you know, us as a bunch of sleeper cells, so to speak, uh, influencing the world, even unwittingly. Um, so, so what, what does this tell us? This tells us, this Talmud tells us, this is a big overview. Let's look back at history. Let's see where we are. What is our progress reports for Tikkun Olam? We see 2,000 years of, of chaos. Abraham comes, 2,000 years of Torah. And now we're in the process. And we see, we look, we look back historically, we see, oh yeah, this makes a lot of sense. We see the world is being influenced by the ideas of the, of the Jewish people. The idea, the themes of Mashiach are taking root. Um, what's interesting is that even though the destination is set, right? it, it makes it very clear that 2,000 years is the world. Uh, six, I'm sorry, 6,000 years is the world. 2,000 years chaos, 2,000 years Torah, 2,000 years Mashiach. We have the destination, right? We have the X in the map of history where we are going. And that's called Mashiach. That is set in stone. What is not set in stone is the process that we're going to take 
to bring that. Essentially, right? This is already this is already uh, this is already well known to people thousands of years ago. The Jews are going to be fulfilling their mission of bringing tikkun olam. Number one. Number two, we are going to be doing that, but we don't know how we're going to do that, in which manner, which process we're going to do that. We know the end game, we don't know how we're going to get there. And the Talmud says there's two ways to get there. There's two ways we can get there. This is again from the Talmud Sanhedrin, that Mashiach comes only in a generation that's entirely righteous, or in a generation that's entirely wicked. Well, I'm not willing to sell out quite yet. I'm not willing to sell it quite yet, Wendy. But either way, what it's telling us is that there's really two avenues we can take. There's two paths towards Mashiach. One is entirely righteous. One's entirely wicked. What does that mean? Or perhaps we can say every Jew takes for themselves a path in how they're going to contribute to that destination. Entirely righteous, entirely wicked. Or every generation takes a path in what they're going to do to contribute towards this development. But it seems problematic. How is it possible that both being righteous and being wicked, which is the exact opposite, bring to the same end? It doesn't seem... I mean, if I, if, if I drive east... And I drive west. Right? There, there, how could you possibly end up in the same destination? Well, maybe if you go around the world, okay. But that, you know, that's you know, that's taking this analogy a little too far, yeah. right? right. You're in a, but it doesn't seem to make any sense. This, the answer to this question is anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism. Okay, now you got to put your thinking caps on here. The answer to that quandary, how is it possible that two divergent paths heading in different directions bring to the same destination, is anti-Semitism. You don't get that. Okay, you don't, no, 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 no one does yet. Okay, how so? Okay, I want everyone here to, not everyone here, but let's see. Um, we have, you guys have your chumashes in front of you, right? Okay, I want someone to open up to chapter 29 of Deuteronomy. Uh, verse, I don't know which verse it is. Uh, I don't know which part it is either. He'll figure it out in a second. Do you give your rental fee? No, no. No, we didn't have a swimmer, so What do you guys see there? Okay, go to 29, 21. Uh, I don't know what page it is. I don't have a chumash in front it of me. It is page 1256. Okay, so... Uh, it, was divine, it was divine that, that I was turned to the right page. It opened it right up to that. How do you like that? Okay, okay Ed, why, Ed, why don't you read those uh, 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 six verses? We're looking for um, the Torah's descriptions of what happens when we choose the path of wickedness. What happens, and how does that teach the world about God? Go ahead. Say, will the generation that follows later your children who will arise after you and the foreigner who will come from a land that is distant when they shall see the plagues of that land and its illnesses which Hashem has afflicted unto it. Okay, so let's do a little introduction. If you read Deuteronomy... What page are you in? 1256. 
21. Verse 21. Okay, so uh, in Deuteronomy, it makes it very clear. If we behave, if we follow the path of righteousness, good things will happen to us. If we follow the path of wickedness, bad things will happen to us. So this is talking about what is the postscript of bad things happening to us and how, you know, how, how do people react to when they see the downfall of the Jewish people? Go ahead. So continue reading. So what people, everyone's going to ask. Go ahead. Sulfur and salt, a burning of all of her land, it cannot be sown and it cannot sprout and there cannot rise up on it any grass. Like the upheaval of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which Hashem overturned in his anger and in his wrath, and say that all the nations, for what reason did Hashem do so to this land, while the flaring of the anger is great as this? And they will say for the reason that they forsook the covenant of Hashem, the God of their forefathers, that he embellished with them when he took out from the land of Egypt, and they went and they served the gods of others, and they prostrated them to them gods that they knew not, nor did he allot to them. So flirted the anger of Hashem against that land to bring upon it all of the curse that is written in this book. And Hashem uprooted them from upon their soil with anger and wrath and with the fury that was great. And he cast them another land as it is okay. this day. So, so, so let's stop here. We have a very interesting idea being conveyed here. Terrible things are going to happen to the Jewish people. And then everyone's going to be asking the question, why do such terrible things happen to the Jewish people? Because they're Jews. And then we get the answer, because they abandoned God. The nations are going to see what's going to happen to the Jews. They see our terrible things. And they ask, why do such terrible things happen to the Jewish people? And the answer is because they abandoned God. What lesson do the nations learn? Or, or they may just say it's because they deserve it. Well, okay, but look, you know, the Torah is describing yes, a process the here. Sign exactly. over, yeah, what, the, what, the, what the Torah tells us is that the, there's going to be a tremendous lesson that the Jewish people would teach. The Jews are going to go down a path of wickedness. And what happens to go down wickedness? All the curses and all the terrible things that are described in Deuteronomy are all going to come true. And it's going to be such a disaster the, the Gentiles and everyone who has the attention, like we spoke about when, Wendy, everyone's looking at the Jewish people and saying, why do such terrible things happen? And then they learn a tremendous lesson about God. The Jews abandoned God, and that's why these things happen to them. What is the result of that lesson? Mashiach, Tikkun Olam. The world knows about God. But it knows about the God because of our wickedness. And we're not there kind of to be the great heroes. Everyone learns from our destruction. We think of Mashiach in very rosy terms. We think of it as, ah, oh, wonderful, you know, we finally get cash in for all this hard work, 2,000 years of hard work. What the Torah, Torah, the Torah is telling us here is that, yeah, Mashiach is a universal endgame. That's going to happen. As Jews, we choose. Do we want it to be in the best of you know, terms? That we're the light to the nation. We teach the world about God. We're the models. Everyone looks up to us. We have the prominence amongst the people. Or are we going to opt to say, let's abandon God. Let's abandon our ideals. Let's go serve other gods, which, by the way, we learned about what that even means. It means to not prioritize God in our life. We don't prioritize God. God comes and smites us. And then, you know what happens? Everyone learns about God. The result is exactly the same. Exactly. 
The destination is clear. It's clear. The world learns about God because of us. However, it's our choice. Is it going to be because of us? Or is it going to be despite of us? Is it going to be in a generation that's entirely righteous? Or in a generation that's entirely wicked? Well, Rabbi, you know, since, since anti-Semitism is what it is, and it's always going to be there, if, if, if it okay, so let's ended say it's up being as a result of the righteous, then the world, the rest of the world wouldn't even look at yeah. us, right? That, okay, so let, let's talk about anti-Semitism. What, what, would, what would you surmise the Almighty wants? Which path does the Almighty want us to take? The Almighty loves us. Path of, path of righteousness. Everyone agrees? Okay. Now, it's fixed that if we abandon the path of righteousness and we choose the path of wickedness, we're not going to be destroyed. Because remember, we have to bring the world to Tikkun Olam. That is the promise made to Abraham. That has to happen. However, it's going to happen through our downfall. Thus, it's not possible in history, no matter how bad we get, we cannot disappear. So the Almighty is going to try to take a, uh, uh, or, or he's going to create a encouragement tool to nudge us back into the path of righteousness. We're traveling the path of righteousness, and then you know what happens? Life happens, and we have free will. And free will enables a lot of decisions, and we get to the fork of the road, and we can opt to choose the path of wickedness. And you, you get a little comfortable, and it's much more appealing, it's much more exciting, it's much more scintillating. You know, it has the pizzazz and the allure and you say, yeah, the path of wickedness, that's, that's, that's what I'm going to choose. And you go down the path. And in your head, this is wonderful. But God knows is that, what's the end game of that? It's really bad. We have to find a way to get you back on the other side. Well, how to get to the other side? You have to make your life in that path so miserable that you want to go find the other path. Anti-Semitism is the little stops and the pit stops on the road of the path of wickedness. We can choose the path of wickedness, and it may be exciting to begin with, but over time, it's going to get very, very unbearable. And that will hopefully nudge us back to the better path. And in history, we look back at history, outbreaks of anti-Semitism happen when the Jews are on the wrong trajectory when they're on the path of bringing the world to God via a nation of being entirely wicked. And that, yes, it could happen, right? And we could insist on taking that path, but the Almighty loves us, and he wants us to get back on the right path, on the path of righteousness. Right, Rabbi, but there's Go 15 ahead. million Jews, okay? Yes. What percent of those are righteous? Now, how are you going to bring the rest... If you have 2 to 3 percent of righteous, how are you going to bring the other 97 percent to the righteous I think we're all going to go okay. down. The, well, so, 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 yeah, so, so, so that, that's another thing. There's many sources in the Talmud talk about the fact that, uh, if you remember, the, the words of the Talmud are a generation of entirely righteous and a generation of entirely wicked. Okay. It means that we're, ju- we're judged as, as a collective. Mm-hmm. Um, the Talmud says, well, what happens when the Jewish people are misbehaving and they have to get punished, right? Okay, they get punished, but let's spare the righteous. They say, wait a minute, why we spare the righteous? They're part of the nation. What happens? There's a conversation the Talmud records in the book of Megillah where Achashverosh, I'm sorry, not Abraham, Achashverosh and Haman are having a conversation. Let's get rid of the Jewish people. But then it says, you know, how how are we going to get rid of the people? So Haman says, well, they're a bunch of sinners. 
So Achashverosh says, yeah, they're a bunch of sinners, but the rabbis, they're righteous. So what does Haman respond? Right? Amachad. There's one nation, which is a verse from, the, uh, from his dialogue with Achashverosh in the Medilla. There's one nation. We are judged as one nation. If we skew towards the wicked, even though there may be some people that are righteous, we're, 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 a, we're a generation that's entirely uh, wicked. And conversely, if we have some stragglers that are wicked, but predominantly we're righteous, then we're, we're a generation that's entirely righteous. How so, do we get to that point? That's a good question. And that's, that's Torah. That's the next step. Yeah. That's Torah. But anti-Semitism is God's way of encouraging us to not take the path of entirely right, wickedness. Because you know what? As bad as anti-Semitism is, as painful, as torturous, as embarrassing, as tragic as anti-Semitism is, it's not half as bad as what looks like uh, at, further down that road of entirely wickedness, of teaching the world about God, but us being totally destroyed. It's much preferable, as painful as that sounds, than the other alternative. And I'll tell you guys some cool stuff in history. In 1844, in fact, in the 19th century, the whole century, if we could expunge one century from the past 2000, that's the one we would do it. It was a century where things went south in such a dramatic way. It's such a death spiral. Such terrible things happened to the Jewish people, spiritually and also physically, right? But spiritually predominantly, um, wherein we have, for the first time, since the Karaites, right, uh, a, a thousand years prior, the first time in a thousand years where you have organized uh, Jewish rejection of basic ideas of Judaism. Yeah. The first time. The well, the early reform, the German reform, that's right. Um, it's the first time where you have not just the individuals, but you have organized right, uh, a, a movement away from God, away from Torah, away from mitzvahs, away from everything. And by the way, we say reform, I just want to point out, the reform today are like the biggest, most righteous people compared to the reform of yesterday. Right? If you, like if you went to France in the 1860s, I read descriptions about what the Jewish community was like in France in the 1860s, there were less than 500 Jews that were Shomer Shabbos, that observed Shabbos in the entire France, which was one of the biggest populations of Jews. The rabbis prided themselves that their synagogues were entirely uh, uh, no different than churches. Services on Sundays, rabbis dressed like priests, no men, exactly. It was like, whoa, like, whoa, where'd that come from? Um, unbelievable, right? You have a quarter million Jews convert to Christianity in the 19th century. A quarter million. Some of them famous, like you may have heard of Karl Marx or Benjamin Disraeli, who became the Prime Minister of England. Someone like Theodore Herzl. Theodore Herzl was a prime example of a Jew from the 19th century. A Jew who was entirely estranged from Judaism. Couldn't read Hebrew, didn't observe any mitzvahs, didn't know any Jewish... Oh, Christmas Eve is nothing. Is you know, no big deal. Like he didn't really, his own kid didn't give him circumcision. He didn't give him a, he didn't give him a breast meal. His wife wasn't probably even Jewish. There's a debate about that. Julie, his wife Julie. He was 
He, you know, he was an example of a common Jew of that time. Because you have a hundred years, and essentially it started even earlier. But, you know, but since the emancipation of Jews from Europe, uh, you know, the Jews are allowed to become citizens and you know, welcome. They're like, oh, look at this path of wickedness. It's so inviting. Yeah. It's so wonderful. We could be citizens. We could own yeah, land. Right. Uh, you know, we could, uh, you know, go attend universities. We could engage in commerce. We could do things that we were never allowed to do in Europe. And what happens? All the doors that were closed for 500 years in Europe, right? Jews are allowed to move to every place, right? Allowed to move to Jews were not allowed to live in England from 1290 for 500 years. Right? William Schweitzer never saw a Jew in his life. There weren't Jews there for 500 years. There weren't. 1290, Jews were expelled from England. Suddenly we're welcome. Huh? huh? That's right. That, which shows you that anti-Semitism is, you know, that transcends actually ever encountering a Jew. But suddenly, overnight almost, right, uh, Napoleon emancipates Europe, the Jews are granted citizenship everywhere, and then they're stuck, and they have long beards, and they're big payas, and they got well, they're weird hats, and weird customs, and this and that, and they go, oh, what's going to be with us, you know? We can't walk down the path of wickedness. We won't be accepted if we have all our Jewish hang-ups. So they start dropping the Jewish hang-ups. In 1844, there's a convention in Brunswick in Germany, where they officially agreed that kosher is no longer applicable, laws of Shabbos no longer applicable, laws of married Jews are no longer applicable. No, nothing. They, they made a declaration. And this was, people were freaking out. Like, what's going on with this? Like, the, you know, and what's happening to the Jewish people? Rabbi Israel Salanter, the most influential rabbi of that, of that century, he declared in 1844, he said, the Jews of Germany rejected the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law, there is going to come a time where the Gentiles are going to force them to readopt the Jewish law. 91 years later, laws of Nuremberg, Jews cannot mingle with non-Jews, Jews cannot marry non-Jews. Whoa, why are the Gentiles doing that? Because that's what happens when you go down that path. It's happened every time in history. It's happened because this is the way the Almighty loves us. And you say, Rabbi, Holocaust means the Almighty loves us? Really? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll ask the question back to you. Is it possible that does not love us? The Torah says that we're children of the Almighty and He doesn't love us? That's not possible either. It's hard for us to see love when we get smacked across the face. It's very hard. And when the Almighty smacks, He smacks hard. It's not pl- pleasant. It's not... It's not pleasant at all. Oh, yeah, but it's got some force. <laughs> There's some oomph in that, uh, in, that, in that smack. And you know what? It's very, very hard for us to see the love when we're getting treated so terribly, so tragically. Well, all we have to do is go to Deuteronomy and... Yeah, well, it's easier there. said than it's, done, I right? Know, but it's but, all there, you know? you know? But this is what we see again and again. This may have been the most dramatic uh, example of anti-Semitism. But it happens every time. Every time the Jews, they start veering away from their mission, they get nudged back. They veer far, they get nudged harder. They veer almost entirely away, they get trounced till they go back. And you know what? You look at where we are today. We have, in, in, eight, in 1953, in Israel, right, in the ashes 
that they're trying to rebuild after the war destroyed almost everything. You know, if you were to make a prediction as to what's going to be with the Jewish people, you would say, yeah, that's it, it's over. You know, they can't live in Europe anymore. Europe is clearly not hospitable for Jews. America was not a good place for Jews. The Jews were assimilating to incredibly high rates. And Israel wasn't a state yet. There was nothing there. And you know what? Even once there was a state, what's going to be with Torah? What's going to be with this path of righteousness? In, the, in, in, in 1952, if you don't know which year it was, the leader of the Torah community in Israel, the Chazanish, he met with Ben-Gurion, very famous meeting, where they negotiated a deal that the 400 Torah scholars that were studying in Yeshiva in Israel will be exempt from army service. Why? Because Ben-Gurion realized that the Torah world was almost entirely destroyed in the, in the war. It's time to start rebuilding. And you know what? To them, it's like, okay, 400 students. You know, it's not insignificant. But what's 400 students? How many students are there today studying Torah full-time? How many students are there today studying Torah full-time? Yeah. When I was in Israel two weeks ago, three weeks ago, whatever it was, uh, someone reliable gave me the figure of 145,000 people studying Torah full-time. That is an explosion of Torah. Where's that from? That's from us being pushed back on the path of entirely righteous. And was it pleasant? Not at all. It's the most painful and most tragic episode in all of human history, arguably. And you know what? It was predicted. Because it's been it's happened again and again and again and again. It's a theme that the Torah tells us. The Torah makes it very clear. This is one example. Uh, 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 there's other examples as well. There's tens of examples in, in Deuteronomy alone where it, say, it, it, it spells it out. We veer, we suffer. But in the aggregate, that's actually better for us. Because suffering along the path of wickedness is better, preferable, than suffering at the end, at the destination point on the path of wickedness. That's much worse. To say, you know, Wendy, to answer your question, anti-Semitism, it's not fun. It's not pleasant. No one's going to make that argument. And of course, I can't stress that enough, you know, how unpleasant it is. Um, thankfully, in America today, we, at least right now, we have very, very little historical anti-Semitism, a historical uh, scale. Is it gone? We know it's not gone, right? It's never gone. It's always there. It's always lingering. Um, and to answer you, like, once again, clearly it's not pleasant. This is not inspiring. Uh, although I may argue that when there's meaning in suffering, when you realize why you're suffering and it's for a purpose, it's a little bit easier to bear. Um, and a lot of people you know, did have that feeling because the Torah makes it clear. Like, read Deuteronomy. It's, it's clear. That that's, that, that's what's happening here. Um, so it's not inspiring it's maybe a little bit more meaningful, um, anti-Semitism in this light. Uh, but when you're able to zoom out and look at the big picture uh, and look at the 6,000-year perspective, and we're getting close to the end. We're getting close to the end. And it's very important that before we're at the end, we're on the right path. And anti-Semitism is the way that God employs to push us 
outside of the realms of Entirely Wicked, where suddenly the world that was so inviting just so recently is not <laughs> hospitable to us at all. You know, the people that we wanted to become affiliated with and want to associate and want to assimilate and be like are suddenly saying, let's round you up and put you guys down. Whoa, what happened? You know, we, we, how did this erupt in the most cultured, most civilized, most logical of societies and countries in the world? Well, that is where the departure towards wickedness began. Is it a shock that that maybe will be the epicenter of the response that's going to happen to that shift? I don't know. As unlikely as that seems. Uh, Either way, what this tells us here, just to go back to our subject matter, yes, Tikkun Olam is for everyone. Tikkun Olam is universal. Yes, we are going to bring it about. That is the pledge to Abraham. That's going to happen. The destination is clear. Mashiach is coming. Now, Mashiach, not the individual or the incident or the point in time, but the 2,000-year process is going to be completed. Who is going to be in charge of bringing about the completion? Us, the Jewish people. How are we going to do it? That's on our hands. We can choose the option of entirely righteous. Fantastic. That's the harder option but we get the most out of it. We're the light to the nation. We're the Ola Goyim. We inspire everyone. We can choose the, ap- the option of entire witness. It's not going to work, right? Well, it will work. It will bring us to, to, to Kudolam. It will bring us to Mashiach. It will teach the world about God, but there's a lot of anti-Semitism along that way. And hopefully anti-Semitism will have its meaningful effect to encourage us toward, to get back to the path of entirely righteousness. But the next question. Okay, now we're on the path of entirely righteousness. What now? Okay, well, free will is is ever-present. What about the path of Torah brings about Mashiach? This is a question that I referenced earlier. Let's assume that we are doing everything correctly. We're being taken throughout the world to influence everyone. We have the spotlight on us. And now we're teaching the world about God. But how do we do it? We're studying Torah. Well, what about Torah contributes to Tikkun Olam? How is our national mission and national destiny fulfilled with our national focus, with our national pastime? What about the Torah brings about Tikkun Olam? Ain't that an interesting question? So I'm going to give a quick answer, and maybe we'll, we're going to go. I think this is the next phase of our discussion. It's going to be okay, Torah, because Torah is all, yeah, that's what it's all about. Briefly, what is the reason why the world is broken to begin with? If you guys remember, we spoke about this last week. The, uh, it might have been two weeks ago. Maybe it was last week. It's all bleeding together. Um, why is the world broken? Because we don't have God. Why not? Right? We have a soul. The soul is deeply and intimately connected to God. What about our soul makes the world broken? Well, the answer is nothing. The soul is not the problem. The body is the problem. It's covered, up. it's covered up, exactly. It's covered up by the body and the minister of the body, which we call the Yetzirah. 
The reason why the world is broken is because we have the Yetzirah. What is the antidote to the Yetzirah? What strips away the power of the body in the Yetzirah? Torah. Via the Yetzirah as well, that's right. Torah. I'll tell you even more. The Yetzirah, that is the choice of the path of entirely wickedness. The pizzazz and the excitement and all, all the things that we reference with this world, the physicality, the materialism, all that, all that pizzazz and allure, that's why it's so exciting to go down that path. What happens when we have Torah? Well, Torah is instructions. What are the instructions directly in opposition of the Yetzirah? This world. The Torah is all about self-denial in this world. Self-denial to Yetzirah. Self-denial to your body. Self-denial to your whims. To your desires. To your whimsicals. It's about building willpower. It's about taking the path of the soul. Thus, Torah enables us to dominate and control Yetzirah with its instructions. Now, just one little ribbon on top here. We're told in the Talmud that there's this donkey, this white donkey, that Abraham rode with Isaac to slaughter him, binding of Isaac. Took a donkey. That same donkey, Moses took from Midian to Egypt. And that same donkey, Messiah is going to ride on. Messiah is, is in, in Jewish literature is called Ani Rochav Al-Hamor. He's a poor person riding on top of the donkey. Which donkey? Same donkey. What this means is a good question. Why is it a white donkey? Okay, fine. But in Jewish philosophy, the idea of a donkey, Hamor, is related to the word Homer. Homer is materialism. What happens when Abraham rides on a donkey means he controls the donkey. Moses, Messiah, control the donkey. They reign in their physicality. Abraham, he's in charge of the first 2,000 years. He brings change in the world of chaos. Moses gives us the Torah. Messiah is the preeminent figure of the last stage of Tikkun Olam. All three of them used the same process. All three of them achieved tikkun olam via mastery, dominion, control of their chamor, of their chomer, of their physicality. Thus, perhaps we get the argument, the Torah enables the brindas tikkun olam by stripping away Yetzirah, which is the problem to begin with, and thus is exemplified by the three great leaders that marshaled or are going to marshal those three transformations in the trajectory of Jewish and world history. Uh, but this is going to lead us to the next frontier of core beliefs of Judaism, and that's Torah. I look forward. Thanks a lot, everyone, for Elchin Hanukkah. This was wonderful and exciting. I look forward to doing this again next time. Any questions? Great class, thanks. Yes, go ahead, please. Well, it's, it's, it's very dangerous. But uh, I'll point out, you say the story of the world. It seems like there are some limitations to our free will. Remember, um, 
Well, well let's, let's talk about let's talk about a Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh had his heart hardened. That is counter to the Jewish model, right? Because why we believe in free will. Heart and heart means that God is interfering with free will. The answer is, is that this 6,000-year process cannot be interrupted by free will. Free will has to exist within the confines of those rigid rules of 6,000 years. No one can choose with their free will to interrupt that. Thus, if someone says, I want to destroy the Jewish people, well, you can't do that. If someone makes the choice to destroy the Jewish people, they cannot do it. Do you know why? Because the Jewish people need to be there for fulfilling this 6,000-year plan. And therefore, they are interfering with God's plans, right? God's plan is that God's pledges to have us there at the end, right? So yes, there are, you destroy the world, you can't destroy the world. Nuclear war can never happen. Right? Mutually assured it can happen because humans do not have the ability to destroy the arena that they are, in which they are granted free will. They, they can destroy a lot of things within that arena, but not the arena itself, not the playground, so to speak, which is the world in which is this process. So you're scared. So you believe that we will not have a nuclear war? Oh, yeah. Not, not a question. Okay. Not a question. Yes. Not a question. Not worried about that. We are allowed almost everything. It means our evil can spread almost anywhere. However, it can destroy the world. Abraham was the beginning. And... Moses well, Moses is sort of in the middle. Okay. Right, Moses is six generations after uh, Abraham, after the six thousand years. Moses is five hundred years into it. Right, but 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 that's right. It has to be the end. That's right. So what are we going to be doing on Rosh Hashanah in the year six thousand? Well, I don't know. Hopefully, we won't have to get there. <laughs> you and I probably will not see that. That's 300 years from now. We might be. Yeah. Oh, I think it's less than that. 